Good morning. Our reading would be out of Genesis today, and in the big print can be found on page 45, and the Pew Bible, page 31. And it's from 14b to verse 30. It's where Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. After Jacob have stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give, you, give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not, your, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bil Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad you had to pronounce some of those names before me because I've been wondering how some of them are pronounced. So there we go. Now, I don't know if you can remember the first time you fell in love. Can you remember that? I was 12 and his name was Simon. We were new at school on the same day. And as soon as I saw his blue eyes and heard his Scottish accent, that was it. It was love. As you know, Mike mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of this series um, on counterfeit gods, which is based on the book by Tim Keller of the same name. And it challenges the promises that um, love, money, and power make to us in today's culture. And today, I'm going to be speaking about love. <laughs> I was bet to do that. I'm just saying that. And I've done it. I like to be a winner. There we go. We are all searching for love, aren't we? It's a basic human drive, and one that's evident throughout history. 
whether in literature, in poetry, in music, in films, reality TV shows, soaps, it's everywhere. We see it from the chivalric romances of medieval Europe in the first and second century, in courtly love in Chaucer in the 14th century, Shakespeare in the 15th, Jane Austen in the 19th, and to today's 21st century heart-wrenching songs of Adele, or the quest for true love that is millionaire matchmaker. <laughs> you see, you know what I'm talking about. But in today's culture, I'd like to suggest that love has been elevated beyond just a timeless quest to hold sort of divine status. I had a friend who in her early 20s always used to say, you know, Bex, I just want to meet my husband so I can start the rest of my life. Love will complete us. Love will set us free. Love will redeem us. Love will save us. Hear this popular quote, this is one of my favorites. And after what felt like an eternity drowning, you finally taught me how to breathe. Are you feeling it? <laughs> There's a lot of great quotes out there. Of course, love is a good thing. Relationships are a good thing. But is it all you need, as our culture would have us believe? Is it all we need? So that's the question I want to think about today. And as Mike said um, earlier on, the title of my talk is Love is Not All You Need. So there's a small clue as to where I'm going with this. I'd like to consider the whole question of love in the context of the story from the book of Genesis that we heard about Jacob and his marriages to the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. So my first point is that love is powerful. I don't think many of us would dispute that, would we? With Simon, my first love, I could barely eat or speak or breathe in his presence. The longing was often overwhelming and all-consuming. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know, don't we? We talk about people being lovesick, and there's, you know, that shows us that it, the power to affect us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, so far, I've obviously only mentioned romantic love, but of course, all love is powerful, whether that's for a parent, for a child, for a friend, for a brother, a sister, or perhaps a guinea pig. Love can affect our whole being. It also has the power to inspire us, to move us to the most extraordinary acts of self-sacrifice, of generosity, of kindness, but also to acts of self-destruction poor judgment, and stupidity. Let's face it, we've all been there, or most of us have. Love has the power to heal or to hurt. It has the power to change us. We can become kinder or harder. We can lose weight. We take up karate, <laughs> or knitting, or gardening, or parkour, whatever it is. Love is powerful. So in the story we heard this morning, Genesis 29, Jacob falls head over heels in love with Rachel. In verse 17 and 18, it says, Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with her. Now this whole story is driven by um, Jacob's longing for Rachel. Now at the time this story is set, it's normal that if there are two sisters like we have Leah and Rachel here, that the eldest would be married first. But Rachel is the younger sister, as we know. 
So when Jacob goes to Rachel's father, Laban, in verse 18, he, he wants to marry her. He says, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob has no dowry. We know that. He's left everything. But in the currency of the time, this was a huge price to pay for a bride. And so that shows us that Jacob is well aware that he's going against the cultural norms of the time. But he's in love. And Rachel's father, Laban, is not stupid, and he agrees. We're told in verse 20, So Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So this passion is, is strong and it's ongoing. He's besotted. Now at this point, I want to just remind us all, um, I know most of us know this story, um, of Jacob's backstory, sort of what leads him to this point where he um, has this love and longing for Rachel. So as we know, Jacob is the younger twin brother of Esau. They are Isaac's sons and grandsons of Abraham. And years earlier, I don't know if you can remember, God promised Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, that the Savior, the Messiah himself, would be one of his descendants. When Abraham's sons, Isaac, and sorry, when Abraham's son Isaac had his twin boys, Esau and Jacob, God gave a prophecy that Jacob, although he was the younger, that he would be the one to continue the messianic line. This is from Genesis 25, verse 23, a bit before the reading we heard today. The elder will serve the younger. However, their father Isaac favored Esau, the older twin, and intended to give him the inheritance contrary to God's will. In chapter 27, when the time came for Isaac to pass on the blessing to the head of the clan, Jacob disguised himself as his twin Esau and received the blessing for himself. When Esau found out, he vowed to kill Jacob. So Jacob was forced to flee to his mother's family. Now, on his way there, he has the most extraordinary encounter with God in a dream. I don't know if you can remember this story. God speaks to him and affirms the um, amazing promises that he made to his grandfather, Abraham. I'm not going to read it, but if you want to look it up, it's Genesis 28, 13 to 15. So when Jacob meets Rachel... And this is where we come into the story. He has lost everything earthly. He's left his family, his friends, and his inheritance behind. He's alone and lonely. His life is empty. So when he sees Rachel, he actually sees more than just a pretty face. He sees belonging. He sees family. He sees a future. So all the longings of his life are pinned on Rachel. On seeing her, Jacob also seems to forget this extraordinary promise that God has made him uh, in that place he calls Bethel. So Jacob looks to Rachel for the transcendence and sense of meaning that previously he had from God. Like many of us today, Jacob is buying into the fantasy that if we find our one true soulmate, everything with us, within us will be healed. Everything wrong with us will be made right. Love is powerful, after all. And do you know, even for those people who've sworn off love, it's powerful. I don't know if you've ever got to a point uh, in your sort of life of relationships where you've gone, right, that's it, I'm done with men. I've had it with women. I'm over the whole lot, that's it. Has anyone got to that point? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and then he met me. <laughs> so cheeky. So if we reject love completely and become so wary of it that we can't engage at all, we are actually just as enslaved as those who are seeking it at all costs, those who are obsessed with having it. Those of us who avoid it may miss out on some amazing partners. Just saying. <laughs> and those of us who are fixated on it um, risk choosing partners who may be entirely unsuitable, you know, who could turn out to be actually abusive and that kind of thing. I've seen that happen so many times. So where are you at this morning? How's your love life? It's not a question you get asked um, often from the front of church, but I'm asking you this morning. Is love in its proper place for you? Remember, Tim Keller's definition of an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Now, I don't know um, what you think, but um, I think as Christians, we can often think that marriage and kids will do it for us. It'll complete us. It's kind of the end game. Now, you might be sitting here in the fog and craziness of babies and toddlers, and you're kind of reviewing that ideal right now. Um, you might be sitting here single and just longing to be with someone. You might never have been in love. Maybe you've lost that connection with your husband or wife. Or maybe your kids have left home and you're wondering what to do with all that love you still feel, where to put it. Could be that you're in the first flush of love and it's all consuming right now. Now we may go through all of these experiences or a number of these experiences in our lives and I don't want to minimize any of the joys or the struggles of all of them but actually it's good to just notice where are we on this and is anything taking away from our relationship with God right now? I'd encourage you as well, if you're really struggling in one of those areas, do um, get some help and support. There's plenty of um, different avenues available at church. We'd love to help you, so do get in touch. Whilst love is a good thing, if we can focus on it too obsessively, whether to avoid it at all costs or to have it at all costs, it can become an idol and take the place that is rightfully God's. So that's my first point. Love is powerful. My second point is that love doesn't deliver. It's not very cheerful this morning, but it's true. My second point is love doesn't deliver. Now, I obsessed about this boy, Simon, for about two years. And one night, um, we were at a party. I think I was 13. One of my friends, who was obviously completely over me going on and on about it, just said, Bex, stop pining and do something about it. And I was like, okay. So I agreed to her asking him out for me two years in. I remember waiting in the bathroom at um, this house we were in, feeling really sick. And he said yes, which totally shocked me. I was like, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> um, we went out for two weeks, and then I dumped him. <laughs> There was no way on earth he was going to live up to my two-year love idolization obsession. He had not a chance. I was thoroughly disappointed. And who knows, he probably was too, without the two-year obsession. There we go, that's 13-year-old love for you. Love doesn't deliver. Now, Tim Keller, in his book, says this. We learn that through all of life, there runs a ground note of cosmic disillusionment. 
So although the setting of my sort of childhood love story might be simple, I think the truth behind it remains. We are all flawed and broken, and no one person can give our souls what they need. I don't know if that rings true to you. After working for Rachel's um, father, Laban, for seven years, Laban finally organizes the wedding party. But, but he swaps Rachel with his eldest daughter, Leah. So Jacob believes he's marrying Rachel, but the next morning wakes up to find out he's actually married Leah and that Laban has tricked him. Can you imagine how he would have felt? When he confronts Laban in verse 25, Laban replies, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then you can have the younger one as well. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. I told you, he's not stupid. He's wily, this man. So this is what Jacob does. And in verse 30, we find out that Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. However, Jacob's love for Rachel doesn't save him or redeem him. It leads him actually to a life of compromise and relational tensions. In order to have Rachel, Jacob disregards the promises that God made to him. He sacrifices 14 years of his working life. And he's tricked by his father-in-law into marrying Leah first. He actually ends up with two wives, two concubines, four families to support. So I suggest, in light of that, that love doesn't deliver for Jacob. And Jacob's idolatry doesn't only ravish his own life, but especially that of Leah's. She's um, often overlooked. We know from the beginning of this story that where Rachel is beautiful, she's beautiful and has a fine form, remember that. Leah has, this is the quote from Genesis 29:17. Leah has weak eyes. Now, we don't know what that means, but we do know that it means that she was really unattractive and probably would have lived in beautiful Rachel's shadow her whole life. She would have known that Laban would be struggling to get rid of her. So when Laban tricks Jacob into marrying her, Leah goes from a father who doesn't want her to a husband who doesn't want her. Now, her response is to become desperate to win her husband's love and approval, an idolatry of her own. Rachel has no children, but Leah quickly has three sons um, with Jacob, and he's convinced that she will be able to win him over because she's producing these sons for him. In Genesis 29, verse 22, we hear what she says after the birth of those three sons. One, Surely my husband will love me now. Two, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And after the third, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Her desperation is heartbreaking. So love doesn't deliver for Leah. What about Rachel? Is she immune to the cosmic disillusionment that Tim Keller talks about? Well, I imagine that Rachel would have struggled under the weight of such idolatry, maybe like Simon did under mine. The pressure on her was probably compounded by the fact that she couldn't have children, whereas Leah was popping them out left, right, and center. 
In her jealous desperation, Rachel suggests that Jacob sleeps with her servant, Bilhah, so that through her, in verse th- um, chapter 30, verse 3, she too can build a family. So Jacob agrees, and Bilhah becomes his concubine. When Bilhah gives birth to a son, Rachel declares, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. It doesn't sound like redemption for anyone, does it, in that situation? And poor Leah, I think she probably would have felt that she'd lost to Rachel many years before that time. So Jacob, Leah, and Rachel are all disappointed. They're all disillusioned. They're compromised. They're jealous. They're bitter. They're ungodly. Love has not delivered. Now, when Jacob goes to bed with the woman he thinks is Rachel and wakes up with Leah, the Hebrew in Genesis 29 verse 25 means literally, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. (laughs) Which I love that slight sort of, oh my gosh. They must have worn a veil or something in the marriage ceremony so that that was possible um, to happen. But um, what a shock after seven years. Tim Keller makes the point that this story is a miniature of the human disillusionment and disappointment we experience as humans from the Garden of Eden onwards. He suggests no matter what we put our hope in, whether it's love or whether it's something else, in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. In the morning, it's always Leah and never Rachel. Whilst um, Jacob's story happens to be about love and marriage, I suggest that the Rachels and the Leahs in our own lives could be a number of different things. Yes, it could be love for someone. But who or what is ours today? Who or what is yours today? It's good to identify these things in our mind. So if it isn't love for someone, is it status? Is it position? Is it your job? Is it wealth? Is it power? Is it your children? Is it travel? Is it popularity? And so on. Yet these things never quite keep their promises. You see, love doesn't deliver. So, we know that love is powerful, and we know that it doesn't deliver. But how can we respond to this cosmic disillusionment that Tim Keller speaks of? Of of always waking up with Leah. Well, I suggest there are four things we might like to do in response. Sorry, not four things we might like to do. There are four things we often do in response. One, we blame what is disappointing us and move on to better ones. You know, if only I could meet a good man, or if only I could meet a man who you fill in the gap. I'd like to suggest that's the way of continued idolatry and addiction. Two, we can blame ourselves. Well, there's obviously something wrong with me. I just can't really do relationships. I can't really do this thing. I'm going to give up on... Sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I've somehow failed. Now that, I'd like to suggest, is the way of self-loathing and shame. And many of us will really recognize all these things. Thirdly, we can blame the world. I'm giving up on men. Curses on all of them, quite frankly. That's the way I suggest of bitterness and cynicism and emptiness. Fourthly, we can reorient our whole lives on God. If we realize that everything in this world leads to cosmic disappointment, sorry, disillusionment, then maybe we need to look for something 
supernatural relationship with God. That is the way of hope. That is the way of life. That is the way of the eternal. So love doesn't deliver. And this fourth response to reorient our whole life onto God leads me to my third and final point, which is this. God fulfills. God fulfills. When I first came to faith, I remember my parents thinking I joined a cult. Um, Now, my mum lived in Holland and my dad lived in England. Um, They didn't speak that much, and they were obviously divorced by this point in time. (laughs) Um, Now, I was full of excitement and passion. And uh, I overheard them talking on the phone one day. And my dad was saying, don't worry, Jane, it'll soon wear off. Um, Bex will move on to the next thing. She'll meet a boy, and it'll all be over. (laughs) Now... It might be true that some of that passion has declined at times, which I'm sure might just be a tiny bit true for some of us here as well. Now, but I'd like to suggest that it never totally wears off. It never goes away, and it's always being rekindled. That's been my experience. And 22 years later, I haven't moved on to the next thing, despite meeting a boy along the way. What about Jacob? Well, later in the story, this is past the bit that we had read this morning, we see that after many years of distraction, Jacob turns once again to God. He returns to Bethel. He makes his peace with his twin, Esau, as well as Laban, his father-in-law. Ultimately, through God, Jacob is fulfilled. God leads him to life. Leah is the one character in, this, in the reading we heard this morning that has any kind of breakthrough uh, with God. Remember, she has three sons, and after each one, she's desperate to be loved by Jacob. But there's a change. After her, um, she gives birth to her fourth son, chapter 29, verse 35, this is what it says. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. This time, I will praise the Lord. So that longing has turned to something else. And she names him Judah. And Judah means praise. And God redeems Leah because, as we can all probably remember, Judah is the one to carry the messianic line. Jesus comes from his lineage. So God totally redeems Leah. So God fulfills us in a way nothing else can, no one else can. He's the true bridegroom. God loves each of us unconditionally, passionately, and completely. He is love. Whilst human love will do some things, it's God's love that will complete us. His love will set us free. His love will save us. His love will redeem us. So the challenge for us today is twofold. The first challenge is to put our love for God in its proper place. First, the Bible makes that very clear. There's no questions around that. Matthew 22 verse 36 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second challenge is for us to receive the love of God. To receive the love 
God has for us. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. So if we do these two things, we will know his fulfillment. And these challenges remain. To love God, to receive his love. When life is good and fun and full of exciting things and adventure and we're going for it. And also when life is tough and we're struggling and our boss is a nightmare and the studying is overwhelming and our children are hard work. That's the challenge. So how can we do it? I think the answer to that is really simple. It is a choice. God is love. So to be in his presence is to be in the presence of love. And I think we are, the challenge is just to choose to be with God. Choosing to live in the truth that he loves us. Now, this might sound like a big sort of task that we can't break down, but actually, I think it can be done through small things. I think it's about weaving it into our day, our week, our term, our year. And so I've got a few little tips just to finish on. I mean, I try to invite God into my day at the start of each day. Now, that could be while I'm drying my hair. It could be when I'm in the shower. It could be when I've hopped in the car. It's pretty much the first moment I remember to do it in the busyness of getting us all out of the door. I try to find a few minutes quiet in the day to read the Bible or do a daily reading. There are some great apps out there these days which um, you know, I really recommend. I like um, HDB's Bible in One Year. I have a prayer partner who I see once a week and she has um, complete um, freedom to challenge me, to keep me accountable, and she also inspires me. I sing worship songs when I'm by myself in my car. Uh, I have a list of Bible verses uh, that tell me the truth about who I am in God, and I read those really regularly. I put a favorite verse up in my kitchen just so that when I'm cooking or yelling at my children, which of course I never do, um, I look at the blackboard and I just am reminded of God's presence and his love. And I have a spiritual director, a kind of spiritual mentor who I see once a half term, who keeps me on track. Um, so those are just a few little things I do. I'm sure you've got masses of things you do and masses of ideas. But I think we just need to be intentional about going for it. Loving God, receiving his love. Because God alone fulfills. So as I finish, let's remember, we are all searching for love. That's normal, and it's good. And love is powerful, and it does do many things, many good things. It's fantastic when it's in its proper place. But love in itself doesn't fully deliver. We will always come up against our own and others' brokenness. In the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. But God does fulfill. If we put him first and love him completely, if we choose to receive his love, we will enjoy wholeness, life, hope, redemption, peace, and abundant life, life to the full. Amen.